bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, December 7th, 2021. In this week's podcast, we're going to talk about what the new normal for long-term tax credit property compliance means for you. This podcast is a must-listen for all long-term housing cash credit participants, whether you're a state allocated agency, property owner, investor, or syndicator. Now, you'll notice I called it the new normal for compliance and not back to normal for compliance. That's because certain compliance requirements in place today are different from the requirements that were in place before the pandemic. So to set the stage, let's go back a bit in time. In February 2019, Treasury issued regulation changes that govern how states monitor for compliance. Now, those changes were scheduled to go into effect January 2021. Now, I emphasize scheduled to go into effect because the effective date of those changes was delayed due to the global pandemic. And not only was the effective date of those changes delayed, but the IRS also provided compliance relief to building owners due to the pandemic. That compliance relief essentially suspended or altered many of the prior compliance monitoring rules. Now, fast forward to September 30th of this year, and that compliance relief expired. It expired on September 30th of this year, which means that those February 2019 regulatory changes that were scheduled to go into effect in January of 2021 are now in effect as of October 1, 2021. Now, in this week's podcast, we're going to analyze the key compliance changes and how they affect long-term housing tax credit participants. And I'll focus on the different roles that are affected and how they're affected. Namely, three major categories, state agencies, property owners, and investors and syndicators. We'll discuss real-life examples of how the new regulations are being implemented. We'll also talk about recommended practices and action items for keeping up with those rules changes, or I should say these rule changes. Joining me in today's podcast is a returning guest, Patrick Tuesday. Novogratik's own Director of Compliance, Stephanie Nockett. Stephanie's clients range from state agencies, investors and syndicators, to developers and on-site property manager staff. She was previously the Director of Multifamily Compliance for the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs, where she oversaw all aspects of compliance monitoring, physical inspection, and compliance administration. In short, Stephanie adds valuable perspective to her discussion today with her varied experience in compliance. Now, we have a lot to cover, so if you're ready, let's get started. So Stephanie, welcome back to Cash Credit Tuesday. I'm excited to be back. Thank you for having me back. No, it's uh, great and obviously very timely as we approach your end. Yeah. <laughs> you were most recently on the podcast in August. And in that episode, we previewed the compliance relief that was set to uh, expire uh, on September 30th. And I encourage any of our listeners, by the way, who missed that episode to go back and listen to it. You can find that podcast at www.nevoco.com slash podcast. And listeners may also want to review a column that I wrote for the August issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits on how to prepare for the compliance obligations that were about to take effect on October 1st. They obviously now have taken effect since we're past the date of my publishing of my August Journal of Tax Credits article. <laughs> Now, with those resources already available, I don't want to spend too much time in today's podcast talking about the expired compliance relief, but in order to level set and maybe a quick refresher, if you could provide a high-level overview of what compliance relief expired 
uh, on September 30th? Sure. Um, so in IRS notice um, 2021-12, there was lots of different provisions that provided some relief to our industry. And there was a handful of ones that specifically affected compliance. And so those are the ones I'm going to focus on. So for owners, there was some, some relief as it related to dealing with your tenants. And the first was not having to do annual income recertification. So for any 100 per, any project that is not 100% low income, you have market rate units, you're required to annually assess each low income tenant's income in order to maintain your applicable fraction. And that requirement was waived for any of those annual income recertifications that were due April 1st of 2020 to September 30th of 2021. So we are back to annual income recertification. So if you have them due and you haven't executed them, you're already behind the curve. So get those notices out and get started in those annual research. So another provision that was available in the relief notice was that owners did not have to have open common areas and amenities. And that was because of safety risk as it related during the pandemic. And now all your amenities are expected to be open and in good repair. So those playgrounds that, that were closed during the pandemic, if they're not in good repair, it's time to take a look at those and get them back up and running. Because violations of not having your amenities open or your common use areas affects our eligible basis. And that's a pretty scary thing to think about. So making sure your, all your common areas and your amenities are up and running, is it's time. From a state agency perspective, and of course it's affected the owners as well, is that any tenant file review and their physical inspection that was due, again, from April 1st to September 30th of 2021 were waived. So we weren't experiencing those normal tenant file reviews and physical inspections on that frequency that's defined in that Treasury Regulation 1.42-5. So we know that the first time that the state is required to come out and conduct a tenant file review or physical inspection is no later than the end of the second calendar year after the last building year project placed in service, and then every three years thereafter. And so all of those that were due during that time period were waived. And so we're back into the normal process, and we can expect to see those state agencies out there conducting these reviews again. Great, thank you for uh, that, Stephanie. That was an uh, excellent uh, overview. I guess I should provide a caveat to our listeners that uh, IRIS hasn't provided any additional guidance with respect to the extension of those, the various relief provisions. And it is possible that the IRIS <laughs> could come out with guidance extending some of those relief provisions. So just know that this podcast is as accurate as it is on the day that we're recording it. And there could be additional guidance uh, coming in the future. And that's a caveat that's applicable to all of our podcasts. So with that overview, let's turn to state allocating agencies. I know your clients make up state allocating agencies, property owners, as well as investors and syndicators. Mm -hmm. And the advice that you give them with respect to compliance requirements depends on their role, because depending on their role, there's different responsibilities that they have. And I do want to break down the podcast into each of these three broad groups. And let's start with the state agent. And I did want to, before we actually did that, I should give a reminder to our listeners. And this is, once again, this is a general caveat, a general reminder for all loan visiting tax credit matters. The loan visiting tax credit is a federal incentive, or at least a federal loan visiting tax credit, the federal incentive. There are state loan visiting tax credits as well, but it is the federal loan visiting tax credit is a federal incentive that's administered at the state level. 
And that means that there are federal requirements that apply to all states and possessions and the like. However, each state does have some degree of flexibility and each agency has flexibility in how they administer the federal credit. And that flexibility applies to both how the tax credit is allocated, as well as how states monitor tax credit properties for compliance. Now we're going to address both the federal changes and how states are interpreting the change requirement. Even though we're not obviously going to cover all 50 states and all the rest, we're going to talk about some various state interpretations of the requirements. Um, so with that in mind, I would just encourage our listeners, the federal rules should be, that we discussed should be universal. However, there can be additional state interpretations and you need to satisfy both. So with that caveat or framework in mind that our listeners have, Stephanie, if you could describe what has changed for state monitoring agencies from a federal regulatory perspective, you know, what's changed across the board for state agencies? So the things that, that federally will impact every state monitoring plan are going to be first, reasonable notice. So the new regulation has some um, specifications about what is considered a reasonable notice. And there's really kind of two dates that were, were changed and, and really highlighted. And, and they were both really for the effect of, I think, enforcing the idea of due diligence. And so, so 15 days, you're, you're no longer going to receive anything more than a 15-day notice when the state's going to come out and do a tenant fire review or physical inspection. So previously, it was just reasonable notice. And now that's been defined through the regulation as 15 days. And that's like, that's 15 calendar days. That's not 15 working days or business days. That is 15 days. And what was it before? It was reasonable notice. And so we often thought, we often thought um, that was really more driven through the state monitoring plan, what reasonable was. So we could, we saw anywhere from 30 to 60 days. And so significantly longer time. And now we're restricted by 15 days. And so that really puts the pressure on everyone involved with that really short turnaround time. And then the second one is that the state agencies cannot identify what units are going to be inspected or uh, whether it be the tenant file reviews or physical inspection until the day of that review. And so there's no advanced notification on what units are going to be inspected or what tenant file certifications are going to be reviewed. And so that does two things for us. It, it, it shortens the timeline for the notification, and then it limits the notification on what units are actually going to be touched which is a much different feeling, especially from my days of the state agency where um, we, you know, gave 30, 45 days of notice. And sometimes we send out advance notice for tenant files so they could, you know, owners could pull their keys and get things ready for us. But that's no more, which is going to impact the owners, how the owners feel these changes. And we'll talk, I know we'll be talking about that later. The other thing that changed was this idea that if your tenant file review and your physical inspection are conducted at different times, the unit sampling has to be done in a random and separate manner. And so in other words, your tenant files, the ones that they're going to be reviewing certifications for, if it's done at a separate time than your physical inspection, will not be the same unit. And so if unit 101 was it had a tenant file review? That doesn't mean unit 101 is going to have a physical inspection. And kind of back in the day, that's what that meant. They were aligned together. And so that one unit was receiving a review of its tenant file certification and a physical inspection. And those have been um, bifurcated at now. The other um, thing that changed was this idea of an all buildings rule. So before the 
physical inspection protocol is done under the Uniform Physical Condition Standard or the UPCS protocol. And there's five different inspectable areas under that particular protocol. And this new regulation says that if through your random sampling, a unit in a particular building isn't picked, you still have to touch some of one of those inspectable areas for that building. And so it's this all buildings rule. It's gonna um, add an additional requirement for states and that just means more is going to be looked at, too, from an owner perspective when we think about the building. And those are really kind of the big changes. There was, and I'll just go ahead and acknowledge it, there was some, some kind of about the actual sampling itself and that there was a temporary regulation that, that was provided originally when it was proposed in 2016 that says, we're going to do the lesser of 20% of the units in your project or what's in this chart. And this chart is found in the Dash 5 regulation. There was a time in which um, Treasury came back and said, just kidding, it is just what's in this chart, which caused quite a bit of concern. And after that, NCSHA and a lot of those national organizations worked closely with Treasury to pull that back. So we're back to what it was proposed and that it's simply going to be the lesser of 20% of the units in your project or that chart. But because all of those changes were happening during times in which inspections were occurring, a lot of folks aren't aware that it changed and then changed back. <laughs> no, thank you for pointing that out. And thanks for a good overview as to how the responsibilities of state agencies have changed. So how do you think state agencies are handling these rules changes over the last uh, you know, couple of months? Well, well you know, I've, I've talked to some state agencies and, and of course I have clients that have undergone already many reviews and it's just all about coordination at this point. So I think that we are all like, oh, 15 days, no big deal. Well, everyone's audit ready, right? We should all be ready anytime. We should all be complying. Compliance isn't, you know, subsequent to all the other business activities of a property. But then it actually started happening. <laughs> we started realizing how tight that 15 days is. And so if you think about like a larger state like Texas, for example, that has a giant portfolio and is very spread out, States are looking at what is due when it's due and trying to coordinate in a manner that tackles everything, but within that 15-day notice. So what does that mean? I am going out, I work for TDHCA, the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs. I'm going out to the Houston area, and I'm going to be doing a review for one, one day, uh, property one day per week. So five different reviews, five days in a week. So if my 15-day notice is, if I, my notice is limited to 15 days, that one-day property, I'm giving 15 days. That second property is 14 days. That, you know, the next property is, is 12 days. And so it's really not 15 days when you look at it logistically. It's really more something like 10 to 15 days, depending on when in the week your property is on their schedule. Conversely, if states were to very much do it by each 15 days, then that would levy on it an additional administrative burden of having to send out notices every day of the week and coordinating that, and then also coordinating those response periods. And, and that can be challenging. So just overall coordination of getting folks out there and making sure that you're, you're following this notification requirement and how that works, I think really feels a lot different than we all thought it would from a state perspective. I, I, I feel for the, for the they're having to coordinate it, especially in these larger ones, because uh, 50 days just is not a lot, a lot of time. And I will say that from my experience, we, we, those 
that notification period will see states request information prior to them coming out there, whether it be, a, you know, we're asking for local COVID inspections or work orders in preparation for a physical review or asking for your utility allowance or any other relevant documents in preparation for a tenant file review, you know, that deadline has to be somewhere in between that 15 days so that they can review it, prepare for it, choose their unit sample, and then get out there. And so that turnaround time just administratively is tight from the state perspective. And then I also think that, or not really think, but what I see is a lot of states still being very concerned about COVID risk and looking at their staff and their personnel and wondering, you know, where is your level of comfortability? You know, before when we were traveling around or the states were traveling around to inspections, it was, you know, they're touching lots of different properties and lots of different hotels and gas stations and, and restaurants. And that exposure can be, you know, a little, you know, scary to, to folks who, who have been cooped up in their room <laughs> at home, working from home for the last 18 months. So just kind of that, that getting over that and getting into, you know, like you said, Mike, the new, the new normal and what that looks like. And the other thing I see states doing, it's it kind of going back to that original concern with the sampling. So what, what's crazy is at the larger your project is, the less they're going to be looking at. And so if I have a project that is hundreds of units, maybe the sample is like 25 units. Whereas before, if it was just straight up 20%, that provided the state a, a level of comfortability that what they were sampling was reflective of what was going on. So I see some states still trying to find that balance between what's federally required and what they're actually comfortable with and making sure that their portfolio is, you know, in good repair and up, up to where it needs to be. No, yeah, those are uh, great observations and definitely you just made 15 days sound a lot shorter. <laughs> right. I know it's like, no, no problem. 15 days, we're ready. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, you get the notice on a Friday night or Friday afternoon, you don't get it till Monday morning. And that's for that fifth property of the week. And all of a sudden we're down to like seven days. <laughs> Got to get information back. And, and what if the person who, who received the emails on vacation and or received notices and around. So it definitely seems like there's a lot of challenges there. So I don't know what states are doing to follow up, to make sure that the property appropriate players receive the notice. So, so to that end, or just more generally for state agencies, you know, what are some of the areas where they've been seeking your advice on how to handle or areas where you've given specific advice on, on addressing uh, some of these challenges or other ones you haven't mentioned? Well, I, th I think what you just said a while ago was an excellent point, making sure you have the right contact information with your state. I mean, the states really need to know who to contact to make sure that the right person is getting these notices so that this 15-day this period can go as smoothly as possible and also so the monitoring review can go as smoothly as possible. If the person that you have on, on record to notify is just like a figurehead who doesn't actually have contact with the property, then your 15 days is getting a lot shorter because, you know, it has to go through a different person to get to a different person. And then sometimes it doesn't even get to the right person. So making sure um, that the state has some sort of mechanism to easily record the correct contact for these reviews. I know that, that that was a huge struggle when I was with the state, just knowing who to contact, making sure this correspondence got to the right person. And this becomes even more important now that we have such a small turnaround time. And then 
just being mindful again that different people have different views about COVID risk and being sensitive to that. And so trying to figure out this is this is the staff that I have. This is what I need to get accomplished. How do I do that in a way that that is sensitive to my staff, but also meets my monitoring responsibilities? And that one's a little bit harder to kind of tackle. But I do think that there's a lot of ways that we can continue to um, meet this requirement. So, for example, during the relief period, there were some states that continued to do tenant file reviews, and w which put them kind of ahead of the game. But what I was seeing is that those were all electronic. We're seeing a movement now that they're allowed to be back in person, that they're coming out on site. But we were really successful with that, that space where we were doing electronic reviews. So looking to bifurcate those, those physical inspection and tenant file reviews, and taking opportunities where we can to do things remotely or continue to do things remotely. And so, you know, if you have a, a tenant file review and a physical inspection that's due in January of 2022, bifurcate that. Let's do the tenant file review electronically so that mitigates the risk in the folks that are out there. And then do the physical inspection in person. And so it just, it, 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 it's a nice way, it's nice in between. So just thinking of creative ways and not just assuming that because I can go back on property, I have to, right? So just settling into the new normal. No, I definitely like that point. Just because you can, you may not have to, and you may not want to, sort of from an efficiency perspective beyond the COVID risks. So yeah, I, almost think, podcast, I was going to say, I almost think sometimes that the upside to all of this COVID is that it forced us to think of things in a different way. And I don't want to backslide and just kind of go back into our old ways just because we don't have this relief on hand anymore. And so I, I really champion kind of that, like, let, let's continue on with this innovative thinking and stick with it. <laughs> so one of the items that we discussed in our prior podcast was to the extent that site visits and unit inspections were kicking back in on October 1st that there could be properties that had to have their inspections by the calendar end of this year. Mm -hmm. That could put a real substantial burden on state agencies, particularly if you're in areas where it could be snowing, you get bad weather mm -hmm. uh, and the rest, or, you know, new COVID variants and the rest. I mean, what's, what have you seen so far with respect to that concern? Well, I've kind of seen three different takes. The first one is, I mean, some states are just like, you know what, we're just not comfortable with it right now. We understand what the risk is. We understand that what our monitoring responsibilities are, but we are going to continue until such time that we feel it's safe to do so. So that's kind of one bucket. And then the others that I've seen are kind of the opposite of that, speeding <laughs> it up. So all of those that they may not have done during the relief period, they're trying to put back onto their schedule. And so, for example, I am working with a, a, a client and they have a, a large portfolio. And, and on one day, they received a notification, like I said, for 21 physical inspections. And that wasn't necessarily 21 that were due during the month of December 2021 because they were done in December 2018. It was because they were in the area. And so they pulled ones that had been due and they pulled ones that will be due to be efficient. And so that's, that's kind of a different approach that we're seeing is kind of speeding up the timeline to kind of catch everything. And then, of course, we have that last bucket where it's just it's doing what is, what is required, just what's required. 
And that's usually driven by staffing needs or by, you know, just this is what's required of me. So this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so, but it's the ones that are, are speeding things up that, that I think we're feeling the most. And I'm, I'm not over, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> 21 properties of the wow. entire portfolio. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. That's that good. was a fun turn 15 days. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we want to turn now, or I'd like to turn now to the property owner's perspective. And we've already noted that one of the things that property owners need to know about the new compliance requirements is getting the right contact information at the state and potentially multiple contact informations if the state will allow it. Just so when you are notified, your distribution of that notice within the company will be wide enough that you can be responding timely. And I, and this really applies, I say property owners, but it's really property owners and property managers. Mm -hmm. So it's really both from that perspective. So maybe you could share, you know, beyond that, what else you think is important for property owners and managers to know about the new compliance requirements? Before I jump into that, I do want to expand and recommend that everyone have a distribution email set up. And so that if the state is communicating via email, more than one person is receiving that. And so that, that helps with that communication. So just, just a little, little, little compliance trick. You say distribution email, maybe you could expand on what that is. Sure. So maybe it's compliance at abccompany.com. And in that you have the property manager, you have the, the you know, the regional manager, you have uh, someone who's from the compliance division. You may have me on there because I'm working with, you, you know, some, a, a group of folks that are being notified. And so that it's not just one person receiving that, it's multiple people so that we, you can really move quickly when you get that notification. And that's really true of any type of communication from the state agency, whether it be notification of an on-site review or notification of an event of noncompliance. And so that you're being made aware of it timely so you can take action in an appropriate time period. That's actually, that's great advice in so many fronts, uh, not the least of which is as you have staffing changes. Yeah. There's no issue <laughs> of with where their email is getting forwarded to and all the rest, and you can add emails to that uh, distribution list. So a uh, great tip. Thank you. At the end of this podcast, I go into my sort of off mic section where I ask for productivity tips. You can't use that one. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, from an, an owner's perspective, you know, the state's feeling the 15 days, well, so is, so is the owner. And it's a little bit um, more, I think, administratively, logistically challenging for on-site staff. So a lot of times, you know, your property manager, your maintenance man, they requested vacation a month and a half ago, you approved. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're notified that in 15 days, the state's coming out and you're scrambling to get someone out on site. And that could be a big deal, especially in those smaller areas or the smaller properties that just have, you know, one person operating them at, or con conversely, the larger properties that like to have everyone from corporate out on the property every time there's some sort of review and, you know, getting those folks out there, mobilizing the team just to be available can be challenging. So not only being responsive to any requests in that 15 day notice for pre onsite documentation or, you know, prep documentation, but actually on the day of making sure that there's staff available there to provide them files or to walk those units. That can be challenging when, when you're scheduling staff so far out in advance. And then not to mention just general staffing issues. I think we're, we're you know, just is a widespread issue. Yes. And so, 
you're dealing with not only well-run properties where you're approving people's time off so far in advance, maybe not having people there the, the date the state picks, but you're also dealing with an, an industry that's really hurting from staffing needs. And so just being able to have folks out there to, to, to greet the state, to provide them the tenant files, to walk the units is challenging. And then let's see, what else? In, you know, the, that, there's, what, how do I say this? What I've heard from folks who have experienced a tenant file review thus far is the state seemed to be very much removed a little bit from the process. So before it was a collaborative effort, if you will. Uh, the states would come out, they reviewed tenant files, they would give you an exit interview. But now it's very much, we need a separate space. We don't want to, you know, risk anything. We don't want to interact. And so they're not getting that same level of maybe support or feedback that we, we saw beforehand. So that's, that's kind of feels different from a, from, you know, a new normal perspective. And then, you know, physical inspections, you're notifying tenants, like their unit's going to be inspected. And, you know, refusal to inspect a unit means you got to find another unit. And so that can be a little bit challenging too, just the day of. Some of the challenges that, you know, they always exist, they would have existed ever, uh, uh, otherwise, but when you couple this with the realities of the pandemic and speeding up all these timelines, you get a very unique <laughs> challenge. So how do you think that owners are doing in terms of responding to these new requirements? And I actually, and even beyond owners, also state agencies, because when they're doing the on-site visits, both the state agency folks haven't been doing it for a while mm -hmm. and the owners haven't had on-sites for a while, <laughs> both there are the new requirements, how they're responding to those, but also just, you know, how you're seeing it going, just the fact that it's restarted after the, yeah, right. the, amidst an ongoing pandemic. Right. And it's, well, it's it, right. And it's weird because you're, you're also, even if you had been at that property for years and years and years, and you had been at the state for years and years and years, it feels different. So we're also dealing with folks who have never even experienced a tenant file review, a physical inspection, or our state agency monitors that are new to the state. And they've actually never conducted, you know, a monitor. And so what I, I'm seeing is just, we're all kind of finding our footing right now the, these last couple of months it's 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 been a lot of where's the balance and how do we strike it and so i think we're going to need a little bit more time to get there what do you think some of the particular challenges of the new requirements are for owners beyond the fact that there's such a short time frame between when you get notice and when you'll have folks from the monitoring part of your state compliance group uh, on your properties I think that this unit sampling is an interesting component and it, and it is, has its good and it's bad. And so the, the good is, is that for, for larger projects, they won't be looking at as much because of the sampling requirement in the chart. But the bad is, is that that means they'll be look, they won't be looking as much, at as much. And so that, that kind of takes away a level of comfortability for your investors to know that you know, your properties are kind of on the up and up and in compliance. And so I, I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic when we start chatting about investors and syndicators about how the sampling size is going to um, affect things. And I would also say that it's just the reality of getting folks back, back into the swing of things. I mean, it, okay. we're just in such a weird time. 
So maybe you could describe some of the work that you do and you provide to owners and property management companies around these inspection requirements. Okay. Well, tackle the known, right? There are some things that we know are, are, and we know when we're going to be monitored. We know what the state may ask for in response to the monitoring. And so we can anticipate, we can be as prepared as possible. And so, for example, if, you know, I had a tenant file review in January of 2019, I can expect it to be happening in January 2022. So six months ago was the time for me to stop and look at my tenant records, making sure I had good, solid tenant files, everything was in good repairs, did I need to take any, you know, draw down from my reserves, fix things that, that maybe got a little wonky during the pandemic, you know, anticipating what the knowns are and mitigating as much as possible so that when you are notified, you're just dealing with that, those, those kind of live things, right? So updating your occupancy reports, submitting work orders or local code inspections as they request. In other words, I know when a tenant file review is going to happen. I know when a physical inspection should be happening. Take time away from that, back out a couple of months, and that's your opportunity to do, do some due diligence. What I love about this program, unlike a lot of affordable housing programs, is that it really um, highlights this idea of due diligence, that we can make mistakes, but so long as that we have policies and procedures in place to address and correct them prior to the notification of review, that they're not subject to an 88-23. And so when we have those um, tools in our tool belt, we should take advantage of them. And so I do... I always recommend, you know, whether it be a full tenant file review, I would definitely recommend a full tenant file review coming out of a pandemic, but, or some sort of percentage thereof, getting an idea of what's going on on your actual property level, I think is, is, is the, the biggest kind of key to productivity. So you said, you know, avoiding an 8823, maybe you could explain for our less informed listeners briefly, briefly. What the 8823 is and what you meant by avoiding an 8823. Sure. So the state mechanism for notifying the IRS of an event of noncompliance is through IRS form 8823. So when they come out and observe an event of noncompliance, they open up a corrective action period. And at the end of that, they're required to notify the IRS on that form 8823 that the event occurred. So if yeah. you are identifying and correcting that stuff before you're notified, an event of noncompliance isn't subject to an 8823. So for example, I have someone in unit 101 and I, I, I missed that raise and that, that third-party employment verification. I have really great policies and procedures in place. I caught that error. I was able to perfect the certification and I did so before the state came out there that event wouldn't be subject to an 8823. However, if the state comes out there and they take unit 101 and they identify the issue, all of a sudden that event would be subject to an 8823. So that, that due diligence is, is really a key component in being successful. And as uh, I know the answer to the question, but I'll ask it in this way for our listeners, just so our listeners don't think I know, don't know the answer to the question. <laughs> so does an 8823 mean some sort of recapture? That's a great question. No, an 8823 doesn't always mean recapture. Um, and also you don't need an 8823 to, for a recapture to occur. And right. I, I, I pro I'm telling you before, uh, 
even though I was at the state, I thought everything was recaptured. <laughs> it was recapture, recapture, 8823. And it was really, you know, when I joined Novogratic that it became very clear that those two events are independent of each other. You know, they don't, an 8823 was, what that was the scary thing to have at, when you were on site was an 8823. And I have signed thousands of those 8823s in my day, and I thought it meant something. <laughs> I was signing those 8823s. But come to find out, it's not really all about the 8823. And so we should still take it seriously. We should still follow our due diligence because lots of 8823s is not a great look either. But just because an 8823 is reported doesn't always lead to a reduction in our qualified basis or recapture. No, but it does mean that the IRS has been notified of an event of noncompliance. It's basically the IRS being told, yeah, this is a, an area that might have uh, a reduction of qualified basis. Mm -hmm. So obviously for anyone who gets an 8823, they should be giving you a call <laughs> so that they're correcting it. So call me before the 8823. We don't want that 8823, whatever the corrective action, even if they come out monitor and they, they cite an event of noncompliance, you're provided a correction period. And that's your opportunity to really engage with the state. Because it's at the end of that corrective period that they're going to issue that 8823. No, that's important. I appreciate your point about not calling you after the 8823 call before, because I'll also note, we don't have to get into this, maybe we'll do a separate podcast on the ins and outs of 8823s, is there are some parts of 8823 that you can't correct. That's right. So mm -hmm. definitely you can't, if you, you can't take the approach of, well, I'll correct them when I get them, you got to avoid getting them. That's, that's exactly, exactly right. So let's turn to investors and syndicators. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not directly affected, but they're most significantly indirectly affected if there is any significant noncompliance that leads to recapture. So we've talked about, you know, the new normal for property compliance for state agencies and owners. And when we look at tax credit investors and syndicators, maybe you could share, you know, if I'm sitting here, if one of our listeners are driving their car, listening to this or walking to work and they work with an investor or a syndicator, what should they be thinking about with respect to this new compliance monitoring regime and in the sense of what should they potentially be doing differently or making sure that they're doing if they uh, may not have been doing it before? Um, well, the first thing I'll say is it's, it's December 7th. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's December 7th. Um, and December 31st means something. And so the investors are really caring about that, that December 31st date. And I bring that up because if um, you underwent a monitoring review, whether it be tenant file or physical inspection back in November, maybe your correction period doesn't end until January, don't wait till the end of your correction period to get that stuff corrected. Because if the event is uncorrected on 1231 of 2021, that's when we're going to maybe see a reduction in our qualified basis. And that's when the investors are going to be really care about what's going on with these credits. Whereas if you correct it or now before the end of the year, then you're really putting yourself in a better position not to experience a reduction in your qualified basis. And so not waiting till the end of the correction period. So investors should be thinking, oh, wait a minute, what's going on with my portfolio? And do I have any deals that were recently monitored? You know, like we said before, an 8823 doesn't always mean a uh, recapture, but a recapture isn't just because an 8823 occurred either. And so making sure you're understanding how those things play together 
is important. I think investors are really more sensitive to that than perhaps on-site staff. The on-site staff just cares about, oh, the corrective action period isn't over until this date. That's when I'm going to worry about it. But if, you know, one day passed and all of a sudden we're in 2022, you know, that one day could really have an impact on that credit delivery. And then I also think that, that in, we're going to see maybe a shift in the way that investors conduct their own reviews and that they usually look at 20%, well, depending on the year, uh, it's either 25% or 20% is what I see generally investors looking at. And I think they're going to be upping their sampling size maybe once they get into these monitoring regs because the state's looking at less. And so to provide an extra kind of consideration or not really consideration, but level of certainty that things are in compliance and credit worthy, I think the investors are really going to be upping their their inspections and what they're going to be looking at. And so that's, that's something to consider. And then the last thing I would say is that, you know, taking a look at your partnership agreements and understanding when you can, you know, draw down reserves so that you're getting ahead of any kind of disrepair uh, that is happening on the project before the state comes out there and conducts these reviews. Because once they, they notify you of physical inspection, remember, they're going to be out there in 15 days. It's really hard to get something back into good repair that's been in disrepair during a pandemic in 15 days. And not to mention, if you wait till that 15-day notice to take that action, now you're going to be subject to an 8823. And so if we take this action now, it not only puts the property back into good repair if you're dealing with physical issues, and that's the face of the program, the way these properties look. And so really making sure, not only for the purpose of mitigating credit recapture or 8823, but just so, so, you're, so we have a good portfolio, we have a good face of our industry, making sure that these properties are in good repair. And then communi- you know, making sure that the property owners and everyone are, are empowered to make sure their staffs are, are in place and really partnering more with owners and, you know, and their partners to make sure that things are, are where they need to be. So be a little bit more plugged in, perhaps, than they were before. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. That was uh, great advice. I particularly appreciated your emphasizing December 31st uh, <laughs> for investors. And I would just emphasize that also for property owners, as I know you would as well. Oh, yeah. Um, it's obviously, it's during years of lease up sort of every month matters and we won't go into all those details. Every month matters. And then thereafter, there's a particular significance uh, to December 31st. So great advice. I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, well, I think I need to reach out and engage uh, Novogratic, Stephanie in particular, on some compliance matters. So if you could share your email address, please. Sure. It's uh, Stephanie, that's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot knockin, N-A-Q-U-I-N at N-O-V-O-C-O dot com. Great. Thank you for that. And I'll also include your contact info in today's show notes, which will be posted at www.novoco.com slash podcast. So thank you very much, Stephanie. And do stick around for the off-mic portion of the podcast, where I get to ask you some off-topic words of wisdom or get some off-topic words of wisdom from you. Uh, that aren't directly tax credit related, that might be indirectly tax credit related. To our listeners, I'm pleased to share that the next two episodes of Tax Credit Tuesday are going to be a special two-part discussion of the $1.7 trillion Build Back Better Act. I'll air part one next week, December 14th, 
And I'm going to focus on what the legislation could mean for affordable housing resources. That's part one, affordable housing, build back better. Part two will air in two weeks. That's on December 21st. There, we're going to focus on what the legislation could mean for renewable energy. And we're going to discuss not only specific proposals in the bill, but more importantly, how listeners can best prepare for those potential changes. Now, to join me for the podcast will be Peter Lawrence. Peter, as you know, is Novogratz's Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. He'll be on both episodes to provide us that legislative, legislative outlook. We'll talk a little bit about the status of the bills. We're still expecting the Senate to take up the bill within the next couple of weeks. And it's unclear if the bill could actually be enacted before the end of the year, even though Senator Majority Leader Schumer is focused on trying to get it done by the end of the year. Now, the December 14th housing episode is also going to include my partner, Dirk Wallace. Dirk heads up the Novogratz Low-Income Housing Task Force Working Group. So he'll be joining us for that episode where we focus on housing. And then the December 21 episode on renewable energy will also include my partner, Tony Grappone. And yes, Tony is the head of the Rural Energy Tax Credit Working Group. And we're obviously focusing on these two areas because they're the areas with the greatest additional resources provided in the Build Back Better Act. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the Task Credit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novoco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to Task Rock Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. If there's another podcasting site that we don't include this on that we should, let us know. So now I'm pleased to reach our off-mic section where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. So I'll start, Stephanie, as Novogratz Director of Compliance. I know that you have a lot of tips to stay organized. You already gave one of your tips <laughs> for clients. So give me your, I won't say your favorite organization tip or two. I'll say one of your favorites mm -hmm. uh, tip or tool for staying organized. Currently, my favorite tool for staying organized is a Smartsheet. Love me a Smartsheet. And we have found so many creative ways to integrate that into um, what we do daily, that it's exciting. And it's, I, I know I just said it exciting in relation to a smart sheet. <laughs> it's literally just that much. I get uh, that excited when I get organized. So, um, it, my, and I'm lucky to be surrounded by a bunch of folks on my team that have that same level of enthusiasm for organization. So also another tip is build a good team who has kind of the same organizational goals as you do. No, that's uh, great. So if I could also get you, my second question has to do with work-life balance. If there are fit your favorite way or ways to try to maintain, achieve, optimize your work-life balance. Well, I have an 11 year old son. I have a forced work-life balance in that, uh, you know, he really takes up, he, he really creates that balance for me. Uh, I, I might sit here in my home office 24 seven if I didn't need to, you know, pick him up from school and do all the mom things, but. I, I think just surrounding myself, my family is really how I, I, I have found to, to create a work-life balance. I'm not very good at the balance part of it. So I tried to champion it with, with folks on my team and making sure that they, they created the work-life balance. So I would say definitely my family is, is who helps me create that or almost forces me to 
keep that balance. I definitely recognize it and 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 these last years the importance of a work life balance and I definitely appreciate it. as as a parent with children in college and not high school <laughs> or middle school elementary school that there's definitely something about you know a child you know being in school and uh, living at home that does create some degree of right yeah uh, well, especially now that he's back at school I mean. During the pandemic, I don't know. It's like we were both working from home. Yeah, that's very true. So the third item has to do with uh, leadership lessons. So what's the most important or one of the most important leadership lessons that you've learned over the years? To surround yourself with people smarter than you are. Honestly. <laughs> I'm always looking to train who's going to, you know, my next boss, right? Like always surrounding myself with people who are smarter than I am. So and we're learning from each other and we're feeding off of each other. And it just creates a good kind of vibe, I think, in a, in a team atmosphere. No, that's great. I appreciate that suggestion as well. I think it's come up before with uh, other guests. <laughs> importance of, of people that you end up hiring. And sort of well, hire one day I want to retire. And if I'm not going to be able to do that, you know, if I... I'm not going to be able to step away unless I've built something that, uh, you know, is, is of, of importance. So. Well, you're still within your compliance period and there is There's a that. agreement. So I'm not coming anytime soon. Sure that. <laughs> I feel like also that there may be some years packed on to that extended use agreement as well. Just <laughs> <laughs> a federal uh, one. 55 years. So. Uh... There you go. Because <laughs> I have a. 55-year extended use agreement. At least it's not a 100-year extended use agreement. <laughs> so, well, thank you very much for being a guest. Thanks for joining me for the off-mic section. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for uh, joining us for another edition of Tax Road Tuesday. Thank you for having me. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.